to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-up. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host, Greg Stetz, and I'm very excited about the topic that we're bringing to you this week, the Polar Silk Road. With me is a researcher of Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, Sebastian Mardo Gibson, who has dedicated his research to understanding what the Belt and Road Initiative brings to the cold North Pole. Sebastian, it's great to have you with us. Great to be here. To start off, let me ask you, what is your background and why did you become interested in Polar Silk Road? Why is Canada interested? Okay, so uh, starting with my background, I'm probably one of the more junior people that you've had on the podcast based on some of your previous interviewees. Um, I'm a recent graduate of the Balsillie School of International Affairs in Waterloo, Ontario. Um, and for the last year, I've been a postgraduate research fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Um, so in my year at the foundation, I undertook an independent research project on the Belt and Road Initiative. And basically, I was trying to develop a clearer picture of three planned infrastructure projects that I had identified as being associated with what's now being called the Polar Silk Road, uh, the concept of linking East Asia and Europe through the Arctic. Um, as part of that process, I traveled to Finland, Estonia, Norway, in China in March and April of this year, and I spoke with about 40 people who had relationships with the projects of interest. These ranged from senior bureaucrats in some cases to current and former elected officials or business people. Um, and I had a chance even to uh, talk with one of the creators of Angry Birds, who has a very ambitious plan to put Helsinki and Tallinn at the heart of the Belt and Road Initiative with a Chinese-financed underwater tunnel linking the two cities. As far as what drives my interest in BRI, um, unfortunately, I don't have a very interesting orig origin story there. Um, my interest in BRI is basically the product of a very crude analysis of the subject's importance. Um, I don't think it's that hyperbolic to say that the Belt and Road Initiative might be a design for the application of state power without parallel in its scale. Uh, that's in terms of the magnitude of the undertaking, its geographic scope, um, and its chronological scope. Keep in mind that BRI's proposed timeline is between now and the end of the first half of the 20th cent 21st century, so pardon me. Um, and uh, certainly there's room for it to continue even longer than that. I mean, I think one of the defining features of BRI is its, its flexibility. Um, and there's a, been a tendency to compare BRI to the Marshall Plan. I don't know that they're great comparators, but I think that generally these comparisons tend to emphasize how much larger BRI will be. 
Um, so just in terms of its magnitude, I, I really think it's something we should actually all be interested in. Um, and then finally, my impression of Canada is that at least at the level of national policy, um, we don't seem to have a very strong interest or position uh, on the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but I expect that that will be changing in the near future, especially as BRI uh, has a greater and greater impact on the Arctic, which of course is a very sensitive region for Canada. So how would you explain what Polar Silk Road is and why is it so important to someone who's hearing about it for the very first time right now listening to this podcast? Okay, sure. So um, the very short answer to that question is that the Polar Silk Road, uh, from my understanding, is basically an economic corridor, like any of the other economic corridors in the Belt and Road Initiative. So, for example, like the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Um, but this one uh, is intended to go through the melting Arctic Ocean um, and connect uh, East Asia to Europe via, via the Eurasian Arctic. That's, so that's it in a, in a very short nutshell. Um, and elaborating on that a little bit, there's kind of two you know, distinct answers to the question of what the Polar Silk Road is. Uh, there is the Polar Silk Road as a concept, and then there's the Polar Silk Road as it actually exists. So I'll start with the concept. Um, the concept entered Chinese policy with the National Development and Reform Commission's 2017 Vision for Maritime Cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative. And in that document, it was described as a blue economic passage leading up to Europe via the Arctic Ocean. So very clear definition, um, but it was, you know, not really very prevalent in the discourse around the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but this definition was expanded upon a great deal in the Arctic Policy White Paper that the State Council released this January. Um, and this really wrote the Polar Silk Road concept into state policy for the first time using those exact words, Polar Silk Road. Um, and I think that it had a, a great deal of, of resonance in the, in the popular you know, discussion of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so as far as how that document elaborates on the meaning of, of the Polar Silk Road, uh, the document makes about 15 distinct references to Arctic shipping. So I think, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, this has to do with shipping goods between Europe and Asia via uh, a, a much shorter um, logistical channel. Um, it also mentions the laying of submarine cables three times, which I think is very interesting, and, and I'll come back to that at some point. Um, and finally, uh, it makes some express commitments to, quote, support, which I read as finance, uh, the construction of icebreakers, end quote. Um, so during this year, uh, I've been studying it. The Polar Silk Road has emerged from essential non-existence as a policy idea, or you know, very, very obscure existence as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, to now what seems to be a distinct prong of BRI that, that's filled in with quite a lot of detail, um, and that fundamentally seeks to connect European and Asian markets via melting Arctic Ocean. As far as its really existing elements are concerned, uh, the principal one to date is Yamal LNG, which is a Russian uh, natural gas liquefaction facility in the Arctic, on the Arctic coast of Siberia. Um, 
and it's important to emphasize the scale of of the of the plant. So the plant alone will more than double uh, Russia's existing uh, LNG liquefaction capacity. Um, and the concept there is that there's a plant on the Arctic coast of Russia um, that liquefies LNG and places it onto distinct ice-breaking tankers uh, that then head uh, via the Arctic Ocean to East Asia. It's basically an unprecedented project, uh, and the Chinese, through the Silk Road Fund, uh, CNPC, China Development Bank, uh, Export-Import Bank of China, have ended up putting up around half of its total cost, which is somewhere in the mid-20 billions. Um, but what's more interesting to me are the future projects that might expand the supply chain into Europe, um, and, and those have been the focus of, of my uh, research. That is all fascinating. So uh, mentioning Europe here, is the Polar Silk Road going to shake the world of the trade routes? And uh, is the competition over resources that you also mentioned uh, going to be somehow involved in this particular Silk Road? So is there a room for win-win cooperation here? Or is the Silk Road going to be more competitive than the other ones? Well, um, this is an interesting question about, about whether or not the Polar Silk Road will, will uh, shake up existing global supply routes. Um, I think that is a large part of the thrust of the project. And uh, I mean, two of the, of the major projects that I identified and, and looked at over the course of my research, one was a, a railway tunnel, a railway a tunnel between Helsinki and Tallinn that would basically create a, a, a link between the European mainland and, and the Finnish rail network. And the second was uh, a, a railway extension that would go from the northernmost extent of, of Finland's railway network to the Arctic port of Kirkenes in Norway, which would basically mean an uninterrupted link all the way to the Arctic Ocean. Um, and the idea is that that could then serve as a conduit for Asian cargo moving through the Arctic Ocean to Europe and then and then down via train into Europe proper. Um, another interesting development is is a data cable, again beginning in the town of Kirkenes um, and terminating in East Asia, um, and this would form the the shortest internet connection between Asia and Europe, uh, and would approximately double. Uh, current connection speeds. Um, so that's not strictly speaking a supply chain in, in the sense of, of containers, but you know, as we've seen, the policy document about the Polar Silk Road does emphasize the laying of submarine cable. And there's also been discussion of the digital Silk Road, the idea that you know the, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is more than just physical infrastructure and, and the movement of physical goods. Um, so, so I find this project to be very interesting and, and quite relevant. Um, so, I mean, all of this getting back to the question of, of whether it will shake up existing supply chains, um, that, is a, that is a tough question. One of the commonplace figures is that an Arctic route between Europe and Asia would reduce shipping distances by about 40% compared to the traditional Suez-Malacca route. Um, but whether it actually diverts shipping traffic in large volumes is another question. Um, so a shorter route, even, particularly if it's filled with navigational hazards like icebergs and uncharted waters, uh, may not necessarily be very commercially viable. Um, for high-value cargo, like you'd find in container ships, the uncertainty and potential for delays could be a killer. 
meanwhile, for bulk cargo like iron ore, uh, there's not so much of a premium for moving quickly. So there'd be less incentive to ship through the Arctic in the first place. Another complication for container shipping is that it tends to not be strictly point to point. Container ships load and unload at intermediate ports on route to their ultimate destinations. And this would, of course, be very difficult to replicate on the coast of the Arctic Ocean, where ports are in short supply, to say the least. Um, so, I mean, there are certainly advantages to, to an Arctic supply chain, but there are some very distinct disadvantages as well that, that could uh, uh, limit the potential of, of Arctic shipping. Um, as far as competition for resources is concerned, uh, the need for natural resources is a definite driver. It's no secret that China's economic growth has driven incredible demand for raw materials of all kinds, and the Arctic presents one more potential source, particularly of energy. Um, it's interesting to note that after CNPC took over 20% of the Mall LNG project, they signed an agreement to guarantee an annual purchase of 3 million metric tons of the plant's product. So it's not unreasonable to say that the Polar Silk Road concept is a potential contributor to China's energy security, uh, especially when we keep in mind that it allows them to hedge against their vulnerabilities uh, importing energy through the Strait of Malacca. Again, though, I think the language of win-win outcomes, which you noted in your question, uh, is relevant here. Um, so win-win cooperation is a recurring catchphrase of the Belt and Road Initiative, along with others such as the community of common destiny. And these are both terms that you'll find sprinkled through the Arctic Policy White Paper. It does seem to describe the actual characteristics of the strategy to some extent. Yamal LNG is a great example. Um, so Russia is cash poor and energy rich, and China is essentially the opposite, energy poor and cash rich. So the Chinese investment in the project is basically an expression of that complementarity between the two economies. Um, the drive for natural resources in this case uh, appears to actually result in win-win cooperation. What is concerning is the potential that Chinese investment could erode the political and regulatory autonomy of Arctic states that are in no position to turn the money away. To some extent, this is Russia's position, but it's more so the position of a country like Greenland which must deal bilaterally with China, despite having a population of 56,000 and a GDP that's about 150th of Vancouver's. You mentioned at the beginning of, uh, of this episode that your research took you to China and to the Nordic countries in Europe. So what is the most interesting thing that you have seen or learned uh, about the Polar Silk Road during your research? Well, one thing that definitely caught my attention um, was the level of public engagement with the Belt and Road concept in the Nordic countries. Um, so my first interviewee, Peter Vesterbaka, uh, is a tech entrepreneur and one of the founders of Angry Birds, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and he hopes to build an undersea tunnel between Helsinki and Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, which would be the longest undersea rail tunnel in the world and would have a price tag somewhere in the ballpark of 25 billion euros. Um, what's really interesting about this is that he's been publicly proclaiming that he intends for this project to be part of the Belt and Road Initiative and that the Chinese will finance it. Um, so this is somebody who has a very high profile and is regularly talking to the media about BRI in Finland. I think uh, a couple months ago he did an interview with Vice on, on this subject. Um, and to my knowledge, there's just no equivalent to that in Canada, pushing BRI into public discourse. Uh, furthermore, I found basically everyone I met with had a clear understanding of the relationship between the Nordic projects I was looking at and the Belt and Road Initiative. 
Often I was uh, very surprised by how forthright some public officials would be in drawing links between the two. And the fact that everyone was ready to discuss this relationship, I think, kind of points to the fact that there's a broad general awareness of uh, what BRI is in Nordic countries. Um, I think I think you'd have some difficulty, you know, finding many people here who know so much about the Belt and Road Initiative or even what it is. Um, I was also struck by the recurring analysis among many I spoke to that the EU perceives the Belt and Road Initiative as a threat um, and would likely move to preempt any effort by China to finance or build a core piece of EU infrastructure, like, for example, a Baltic Sea Tunnel or an Arctic Railway, either through regulatory roadblocks or, I think more interestingly, by funding the project themselves first. Uh, taken to its conclusion, this analysis would seem to suggest that member states of the EU can use the threat of Chinese financing as leverage to secure more or faster infrastructure support from the EU. I've had no indication that that's going on, but it's an interesting idea. Um, just as an aside on that, it wasn't exactly clear at the outset why the EU would view BRI as a threat. But increasingly, I've been thinking of it as being basically equivalent to a foreign nation uh, coming in and financing, say, for example, the province of British Columbia's highways or, you know, the state of Oregon's highways. Um, it's not hard to see how that would begin to erode the political cohesion of uh, the Canadian Federation or, or the U.S., um, so from that perspective, it's it's easy to see why the EU would fear BRI. Uh, it's potentially something that could dilute the the political um, cohesion of of the of the European Union. Um, I do hope, however, though, that eventually the EU and China find a mutually agreeable basis for cooperation on the Belt and Road Initiative, um, because I think that there are many, you know, complementarities between their interests. As far as I can tell, that doesn't exist yet. So uh, we talked about the countries, we talked about the level of geopolitics, but what about business? Uh, what business opportunities and for whom does the Polar Silk Road open? If uh, I were a businessman or a businesswoman operating in Canada, Russia, China, or one of Europe's Nordic countries, would the development of Polar Silk Road really impact me meaningfully? So I think this is an interesting question. And like a lot of the Belt and Road Initiative, the projects that I'm looking at uh, as being related to the Polar Silk Road are of such a large scale and have such large capital requirements that as kind of an everyday uh, entrepreneur, maybe a small business person, um, the capacity to engage with those projects and, and engage with the process of, of building them um, very meaningfully is quite limited. Uh, the data cable connection, for instance, between uh, the town of Kirkenes in East Asia um, is being undertaken by a state-owned enterprise. And the railway projects that are in the billions, you know, would be being undertaken by governments or governments in collaboration with very large construction firms. So uh, the, the answer is directly uh, very small, uh, you know, room for engagement. Um, but the more interesting thing is, is that indirectly, uh, they will have a great deal of meaning for, for entrepreneurs. Um, the data cable is one to look at. So the data cable connection between uh, East Asia and Kerkines, uh would effectively double uh, the speed of, of the Nordic countries' connection to East Asia. 
And this would mean that people using very large quantities of, of data, this could include data centers, it could include uh, finance, uh, finance industry, um, would have now an incentive to, to divert their investment to the Nordic countries. That's uh, just one example. But uh, there are many ways in which infrastructural changes change the economic landscape that entrepreneurs operate within. So even if uh, engaging directly with the construction of the projects is something that's outside of uh, the scope of, of what a small business can do, um, the projects, when completed, will, will alter the landscape that they operate in. And it's important to pay attention to the opportunities and, and threats that come with that. I would take that analysis beyond a simple discussion of the Polar Silk Road and say that that's kind of the way that the whole Belt and Road Initiative is. Um, the completed projects, you know, even in cases where they're largely built by Chinese state-owned enterprises um, in ways that, you know, are not necessarily open to anyone off the street to build a, a gigantic railway through Kazakhstan or, or something of that nature. Um, even even though there's not so much room to engage directly with the project construction, the opportunities and threats that come with the changes to the economic landscape that these projects bring with them, um, I think have the greatest significance for uh, small business people. Um, and I expect that there will be very substantial um, very substantial impact uh, from from the projects that are under discussion in the Nordic countries. Um, and and those impacts could be various and and will be various and will be diffused through the entire economy. Thank you so much. Uh, that's it for today's episode of the Voices of the Belt and Road. Sebastian, thank you so much for shedding light on the Polar Silk Road and sharing your ideas with us. this week's Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.